0: Capital Retirement Strategies and Cambridge Investment Research are not affiliated.
1: Life Now, episode number sixty one. Here we go. Dave, how are you doing? I'm
0: uh, I'm good. I'm yeah. one of the few people in the Washington DC area who doesn't have the cold or a flu. Oh.
1: <laughs> Knock on wood. I have been healthy, but my family, my oldest daughter got it, my young or my middle one got it. It's it's run through our house.
0: Yeah, I think my wife is catching a cold Ooh.
1: <laughs> today.
0: So it's gonna be tough to avoid, but uh Okay, so that's something.
1: (laughs) I always try to do, you know, any of the take zinc or the airborne stuff or any of that. I I know, don't email me, tell me that the studies have shown it doesn't do anything. I just makes me feel a little bit better.
0: Yeah, my thing is not rubbing my eye with my hand.
1: Yep, not touching my face. I don't know if that works
0: or not. Maybe it does, but I try not to touch my face. I I,
1: I wind up scratching, touching my face. I think that's the worst thing. All right, we are not here to talk about cold and flu season, (laughs) however much that might dominate our lives this time of year. Uh, We are here to talk about your money. And I thought that it was necessary to do a follow up podcast to the one that we did in December that was about the Secure Act.
0: Right. It was one of the rare podcasts where what we said came true. We were (laughs) a whole bunch of disclaimers because it hadn't been passed yet. Right. And then we were actually right that it. was in fact
1: passed yes and the secure act oh i should have pulled up what it stands for it's setting every community up uh i can't remember what retirement retirement ease easily. we made up that i made oh, that part. Of that's it. not quite right but it's setting every community up for retirement something something okay um and you know a lot of people are there's a lot been a lot of articles about this. So a lot of people are asking, hey, I've heard there's some changes. What does this all mean? I'm going to boil it down for you into the, the parts that, I, that we think are most important, right? The biggest impact, because there's a lot of little smaller things that could be important to some people, but not everybody. The biggest things in my mind, really two things. One is changing the RMD age to 72, Right, Right? So here are the details on this because, you know, the devil's in the details. If you turn 70 and a half after the end of last year, right, if you turn 70 and a half during 2019, forget about it.
0: Yeah, you're you're not grandfathered into this thing.
1: Yep. You're under the old system. You turn 70 and a half after the end of 2019, 2020 and beyond, you're under the new rules and the new rules quite simply say that you don't have to take your rmd until you hit 72 right right so used to be this not 72 and a half right no no that's a, another point of confusion a lot of people go, well what's this 72 and a half thing nope get rid of the half just 72. And
0: we should even say that RMD means you have to take money out of your qualified money, just for those who don't know what an RMD is.
1: Good point. We assume a certain level of knowledge if you're listening here. So those RMDs required minimum distributions. This is out of your IRAs, 401ks, TSPs, 403bs, your non-Roth retirement accounts, right? Roth accounts, no changes there, Roth accounts still do not have any sort of required minimum distributions, All right? So that's big change number one. That is, in effect, if you are turning 70 and a half after the end of last year, so anytime this year and beyond, forget about 70 and a half, just think of 72, right? And the rule is always the year that you turn 72, that's when you have to take that first distribution. And for these reasons, I won't get into the, the optional delay of your first distribution. That's for another time. All right. So that was big change number one. People are one. going their calendar, I can't wait for the optional delay on my first distribution <laughs> podcast. Oh, gosh. Now now that I got into it, what, what I meant by that was in that very first year when you take an RMD, you are allowed to delay up until April 1st of the next calendar year. Right. Right. Would have made for a short podcast. <laughs> yeah, and a really boring one. Um, you know, the circumstances where we do that are pretty rare. I mean, it, it has to be something where, hey, I had a whole lot of income. Actually, we have one client where we're doing this. He sold a medical practice in 2019, had a lot of income, said he didn't want to take his wife's RMD until 2020. So we're delaying until this year. All right. So the 72 rule, that was the first big change. The other big change that I think in the long run could be an even bigger deal is the elimination of the stretch IRA provisions. Right? What does that mean? It means in the past, and this is once again applies to if you inherited an IRA pre-December 31st, 2019. Right? So you did it before the end of the year what you could do was take out distributions over your life expectancy right so your father dies he passes his ira to you you're 50 years old you could then take out distributions for the next 30 some right. odd years but you had to well you have to right yeah, it's not
0: that you could it's like you have to or
1: the irs right <laughs> you had the option to <laughs> you could always turn around and take out that money right, right. away but most
0: people don't want to take the tax hit so you basically had to take rmds based on your yep. the formula
1: that it was so you know let's say that was somebody who inherited a million dollar ira at age 50 based on that i'm just going to use some rough numbers here they under the old system they'd have to take about $40,000 maybe maybe not even that much $30,000 a year going forward Right? And they could stretch out and defer taxes on that. Right. Now, what the new rules say is you have to distribute all of that money within 10 years.
0: Right. So that's like $100,000 a year
1: is one strategy. Uh, right. And that's this is one thing that I mentioned to Dave is I'm curious to hear what if some people come up with some creative strategies for taking distributions – because it's not a requirement that you have to take out every year for 10 years. It's simply a requirement that you've got to have a zero balance by the end of the 10th year. So in theory, you could leave that million dollars in there and take it all out You know, in year nine and a half. Right. Or you could take it out a little bit each year and, and deal with it that way. Um, There's a whole
0: bunch. Well, I think what it – and I do agree with you this is the bigger of the two – big things that came out of the secure act now inheritance planning was already hard i'm not saying hard enough but people who are smart mm-hmm. get an inheritance um usually around the age of our clients like yeah. our over lot. 55 or whatever and you know you, you got to do planning for that now that planning has become even more complicated now we have to work on a new law that basically gives us options Right. You know, what options make the most sense always is going to be based on what the client needs
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, or doesn't need based on that money. But I just find this to be the more interesting anyway, more challenging of the two
1: yeah. things that and came down
0: the pike there.
1: I even read an article yesterday that was talking about how they, they think that there will be a lot more life insurance strategies involved. I was just with, thinking that yeah. with passing on wealth now. Right. Um just because you're going to have more control over when taxes are paid and, and the, you know, the distribution of assets. So anyway, like I said, I, I will be curious to see what creative strategies some people smarter than us come up with and <laughs> we can utilize for, for clients. Right.
0: So, we're basically all saying right. we're not going to come up with those. Strategies. Well, I don't know. I'll think about <laughs> we it. We're trying to come up with something.
1: But these people, there's a lot of people who sit around all day long and it's right. their job to come up with these things.
0: Yeah. And I was just, I I have a feeling that life insurance, because there's something that you can leverage, mm-hmm. you know, to take advantage of something like this. And right. I can see several ways of doing that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, like I said, there are other details to the SECURE Act, but I think those are the biggest and most impactful ones for for our clients, people listening. Um, But Dave, I, I wanted to shift gears here. And, you know, this time of year, most investment companies out there are doing some sort of outlook for 2020, some sort of what do we see coming over the next 12 months or 18 months. Right. Um, so I've been listening to some of these web uh, webinars and you know reading some of these guides that these companies are putting out. So I, I thought it was interesting to put together some of the the thoughts that we get from here. Now, I, I will say that it's it's always interesting to hear the way that these companies sort of hedge their bets on any of their predictions. And I don't blame them. I mean, when you're talking about a relatively short period of time, it's very hard to predict. I mean, Warren Buffett's been one who is, is classically, you know, he's refused to make short-term predictions because he said, "I don't know what's going to happen." Right? It's short ridiculous. Term. You know, longer term, he he might have a nice vision. So, all right. So here were a couple of things that I jotted down. This is from a, a couple of different uh, companies. So the first one uh, that I took a look at was something that did a comparison of investment returns. In years with a presidential election hmm. and years without a presidential election. So they went back to 1932. and I'm not exactly sure why they picked this time period, but they basically picked June of before the election to 12 months later. Okay. Right? So basically June through uh, first through the end of May, the year following the election there. So I guess it kind of gives you a run up to the election and then six months after the election as well. And what the analysis says is that the the return in years with no election average, this is S&P 500, average 5.8 percent, years with an election, average 10.2 percent. Huh. So, (laughs) you know, this is one of those things where people will commonly say without a whole lot of support, oh, yeah, the. The president will just try to juice the economy, you know, to to make, you know, using the Fed or something like that to make everything look better before they get elected. Yeah, Um, I would
0: say more like the luck of what's going on. I'm just thinking of some recent elections, like some midterms especially. There's the We're middle talking- of Bill Clinton's term. Ninety-six was probably a great year for the markets in the middle of the 90s. We're talking about presidential elections yeah. only, though. Yeah, and, and you knew Clinton was going to be—well, most people didn't think Bob Dole was going to beat Clinton. So that was 96. Reagan in the middle, like his thing got going with the economy when he was going up against Walter Mondell in 84. Right. Not exactly. In other words, for an election, it was pretty stable. And even George W. Bush, 2006, that was before things came crashing down. It's another Mm -hmm. election. And sometimes when things are bad and you have an election, hey, it'll get better. Like Clinton over Bush, it was a recession and other. So I can see how that's versus, say, this year's election. This is where the the prediction might not be so good. There are some people who would say, wow, I don't know how great I'm going to feel about anything if it's, say, Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. Well, it right. is going to be versus Donald Trump. But Bernie Sanders would be from a, of just purely thinking about money. Mm-hmm. There's something that's not going to make people think, you know what? Hey, it's just another election.
1: But, yeah. Bernie
0: Sanders versus Donald Trump. Yeah, same as Reagan, Mondale, and whatever.
1: <laughs> no, regardless of your political. So ease, that's I find different. that per,
0: that thing to be <laughs> yeah. something that I actually get when I look at a bunch of previous elections. But I would look at this particular one. The saying any election with Donald Trump is going to be a volatile, mental, psychological election regardless. Yep. And then if you throw in a Bernie Sanders uh, or an Elizabeth Warren that is so far on the other side, especially when it comes to people's money, I can't imagine volatility not being a, a player there.
1: Yep. And, uh, you know, another shift in gears with a lot of these, these outlook for 2020 um, – a lot of these companies now are, are sort of pushing off this idea of a recession happening in 2020. So if, if you remember, going back to our 2019 outlooks, a lot of companies were saying, well, yeah, it looks like probably a recession in 2020. Now they're kicking the can down the road to say, yeah, it looks like it might be more 2021 or, or beyond there, Um So, you know, a lot of companies, you know, based on the data there, think that even though manufacturing has slumped a lot, the retail sales, the consumer is still supporting this economy, right? Right. people are still spending money because they still have confidence. Yeah. Plus, and they still have jobs. And I (laughs)
0: steal this from you because you talk to our clients a lot about this, but the, when you look at this expansion, it's been a slow expansion. There have been other economic expansions that have been much greater Ours is just a slow, like a tortoise expansion versus a hare expansion, which also would lead to the the room there for extra growth. And and that'd be another uh, anti-recession factor, maybe.
1: So um, this really ties back in. This next point ties back in with what you were saying is this idea that an election year is probably going to be a volatile year. And you mentioned a scenario that could certainly be volatile, you know, Trump versus Sanders. I mean, there's so many things that Nowadays, could Nowadays,
0: in the modern elections, everything is volatile. But, right, you know, Donald Trump is, has been, if you just look at the, the economy in his presidency, you're not going to complain. You look at the stock market, mm-hmm. more particularly as president, you're not going to complain. But when you look at pure volatility right. as a factor, it's hard to have Donald Trump in an election and volatility and Not to be just some sort of powder keg type of factor, but like I said, you throw in a, a Bernie Sanders, and right now, I mean, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but right now, as of January 10th, he certainly has a chance. I would yeah. say Biden and Sanders are be like the front runners, um, just purely from a money point of view. Um, and people thinking about that, I can't imagine I would imagine volatility to the, to the extent of as you get closer, ooh, Bernie Sanders is ahead. People freaking out. Donald yeah. Trump's doing better. People not freaking out. This is how I would look at yeah. something like the stock market. Probably,
1: anyway. yeah. Well, one of the, the consistent themes that I saw across a couple of different um, outlooks was this idea when, vol- when we expect volatility to pick up that go higher quality with your stocks and bonds. Right? And what they mean by this, and you know, I'm parsing down a lot of data and a lot of charts here, um, higher quality when it comes to bonds is pretty straightforward. You know, companies or governments with better credit ratings. You know, you don't want that junkier stuff. You want the more secure right. stuff. Now, that's in general always been our philosophy when it comes to bonds is we're taking risk by investing in stocks. We're in bonds not to get rich, but to have that stability so that when the market crashes and you know whatever happens that we've got that money liquid and secure but this is sort of reinforcing that saying you know high credit quality or higher credit quality than you were before and on the other side of thing on the stock side they're talking about higher quality stocks and what they mean by this is more dividend paying stocks and more stocks that where the companies are growing their dividends right. Now this would be a little bit of a reversal from what we've seen the past couple of years where growth stocks, right. just pure technology stocks have dominated the market. um so it'll be interesting to see if that actually plays out that people sort of take refuge in companies that have that pricing power, have the ability to pay dividends and grow their dividends uh, because that that should be someplace that's a little bit more secure when there's uncertainty in the market. Hmm. So makes sense. Yeah. I think that's all I want to cover for today. Okay. So thank you guys for listening. Oh, you know what? One last one I had down here was kind of hiding the international equity discussion.
0: What's the international (laughs) equity discussion Come on Dave?
1: We've had this discussion with every client. The, The question of, Hey, US stocks have beaten international oh, stocks for that. the past you know, eight out of 10 years. Should we still own international stocks? Um, and one of these outlooks that I was looking at really had a breakdown of the performance of underlying companies and, and indexes and is basically saying, yes, broadly speaking, as a, a whole group, the US has done better than international companies. But that's not saying that there aren't some international companies that have done very well. You know, in fact, they they look at one of these statistics that showed the best performing stocks each year. Right. And each year it averages about 75% of the top 100 best performing stocks are based outside the U.S. Right? Yeah. So it's – I mean – I.
0: Again, first of all, in the long run, having some diversity in your portfolio and not, no matter how good it feels, running away from a sector that's important like international will do you well secondly if you don't like talk like this and you just want to go by something that's anecdotal and Mm. more fun go to the forbes billionaire list and you'll notice they're not all american (laughs) the the top ones a lot of them are not americans there's Mm. a reason for that because there are other businesses besides america
1: right all right thanks for tuning in we will check back in again with you next month